0: York City today, and I'm hanging out with Seth Porges, who is a, a journalist, a TV personality. <laughs> I know you hate that. Uh, he is a, a pop culture connoisseur and a chronicler of all things underground and unobserved and undiscovered, I guess. And, and observed too, <laughs> and discovered, hopefully. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, but I, mean, I I think one of your biggest claims to fame is that if you go into Google and you type in history of pinball, you're I think pretty much one of the top list uh,
1: a lot of things I have, have <laughs> written or said pop up if you do that please don't do that uh, no so I have this kind of long standing fascination with the history of pinball and it's something I am very quick to kind of bring up in conversations when things start to slow down a bit because I think it's so fascinating <laughs> but, um, but, but pinball were
0: you, were you denied playing as a child or something is there some, some oh my I don't even think here? I
1: cared as a kid
0: but but I'm, I'm super but you didn't care I mean book Shields and Tilt was was one of my ad- first adolescent crushes.
1: Oh well, I mean, do you remember Xanadu when they're roller skating through the giant pinball machine? Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John. I forgot
0: that. You're <laughs> right. You're so, right. It, there was something deeply surreal about uh, pinball in the '70s and early '80s. Oh, I have so much to
1: say about that. But let me let me <laughs> back
0: up again a bit first.
1: Uh, so my, my fascination with pinball stems from its sort of nefarious roots and its its uh, illicit nature. So a lot of people don't know today, and it sort of has this, uh, you know, today it's probably viewed as a rather vanilla and safe and simple game, but for many years and decades it was it was banned, it was illegal, in most major cities in America. So in New oh. York, Los Angeles, Chicago, which is where all the games were made. So there was a moral
0: hazard around pinball. It was a moral
1: hazard. It was viewed in, as this incredible moral crisis, and it was viewed as a wicked, evil, terrible game. that could not safely exist on this planet and, and and I just love kind of thinking about how if you took a random kid on the street today and asked them about pinball they'd shrug their shoulders if they'd ever heard of a pinball machine but you know 40 or 50 years ago people have been like that's 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 a that's a menace to society how
0: did it earn the sort of the tag of the devil's pastime
1: well pinball machines were were viewed as a game of chance and not skill and Back in the day, anything associated with chance was associated with gambling. Right. There was a sense that if you leave something to chance, it's going to be used for gambling in some way, because that's what gambling is. Did, did
0: people gamble with pinball originally? Well, so in, in the early
1: days, what what was a pinball machine, there's so little resemblance to what we call a pinball machine today. And it was sort of, you know, the game was sort of just coming into its, in, in, its own. And there were a lot of gambling devices that had a lot of things in common with pinball machines, and there's some pinball games that had no gambling use whatsoever, but some machines probably had a, a gambling use to them. Uh, but what occurred though, is that people kind of conflated them a lot with slot machines. And so you even have things where, where politicians called pinball machines one arm bandits, which of course was the nickname for the slot machine, even though there is no one arm on a, on a pinball machine. Uh, so what occurred is pinball machines just became deeply associated with gambling, but they were kind of a special menace even, even there. Because unlike other gambling-capable devices like slot machines, slot machines are viewed as a pastime that adults would waste their money at. They were viewed as no good, but something that, you know, if kids were never <laughs> going to touch. What kid's going to play slot machine? Pinball machines... Viewed as this, this game that would have a siren's call that would reach out the children and it was a gateway drug. It was for gambling. a gateway gambling device. It's exactly <laughs> what I say. It was viewed as this gateway gambling device that would lure kids in and 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 sucker them in and steal their lunch money. <laughs> and from that moment on, they would be they would be tainted and ruined, and it would be forever in the grasp of this moral hazard.
0: But do you see a direct sort of evolution from pinball as a kind of a underground? Illicit activity to to the popularity of arcade games, you know, as a kind of an act of rebellion against society as well.
1: Well, sure, and I and I think there are so many forms of entertainment that you can look at through the 20th century, in particular, that kids thought were awesome and parents thought were scary. And this sort of story pops up again and again and again with comic books, which were, of course, regulated via. And these, such as the comic book code to the attempts to and then i think it was like the early 90s to uh regulate and, and rate video games because the idea was violent video games were ruining youth this and rap music you know with the uh explicit lyrics warnings there was a sense that anything that kids were up to well parents didn't understand them um but this was particularly acute, acute and 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 the sensibility was particularly strong back then, because the very idea of kids having access to any form of culture, entertainment outside of the parents' grasp was just such a new concept, mm-hmm. right? And you think about what time this is This is in the 1930s and 40s. This is right after Prohibition had ended, and the whole premise behind Prohibition was that alcohol is ruining society, and if we get rid of alcohol, everything will be, you know, lilies and roses and we'll be all great. Didn't work out like that. So a lot of these moral crusaders who were heavily pushing prohibition and and temperance, they looked for another kind of moral hazard to blame all of society's ills on, and a lot of them stumbled onto gambling. So a lot of the same people, the same groups, involved with, (laughs) with temperance prohibition, then moved on to saying, gambling is it. If we can get rid of gambling, everything in this world will be better so so many things got kind of cut up into this anti-gambling hysteria but pinball was also then dragged into promiscuity and sort of sex repression as well right absolutely pinball i mean it is a scandalous game you shake it with your body i mean if you With with a
0: pelvic thrust with
1: a pelvic thrust and if you this is so fast so pinball machines were illegal in new york city until 1976 which is kind of recent if you
0: think about it like it's, it's, it's I'm so c- glad you said that because it's my birth year.
1: Yes. Well, there you go. So you were born that your pinball machines were, were legalized in New York City. And if you had asked anybody who kind of came of age before then about pinball machines, they it was illegal for so long that they you know, and portrayed for so long as this hazardous device that they just kind of took it for granted that this was like an outlaw game so you watch any movies or tv shows or or any form of media in which pinball machines pop up through pretty much the 1970s maybe early 1980s and pinball makes an appearance it's always as a uh as a totem to convey that a character is a rebel or an outlaw or a rule breaker. It's like showing somebody smoke a cigarette. You know they're an outlaw. You show them play pinball machines, you know they're an outlaw. And You think about pinball machines. You're putting this in your movie. These are giant props. They're not accidentally going to show up on set one day. You need to really want to put a pinball machine in your movie and you want to say something with that pinball machine. Oftentimes what they want to say is this biker gang is up to no good. You'll see them like in the background of biker gang hangouts or the Fonz is a rebel because the Fonz is playing a pinball machine. Whereas now,
0: if you see it in the movies, a trope to say that the forty-five-year-old there still is acting like a child.
1: Exactly. <laughs> or in the case of Big, where he gets pinball machine, the child is acting like a forty-five-year-old.
0: <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> but you, you've been to Tokyo, right? And you've probably been to the pachinko halls. Oh man, uh, which are, it's just like a sonic assault on the on the senses. Yeah.
1: It's oh, um, so pachinko is super interesting to me because the way the uh, they kind of get around the anti-gambling laws. Wait, that's why it is gambling. It is gambling, but they have like loopholes that allow them to get away with it. Because my understanding is you don't win cash directly from a Pashenko machine. You can win like prizes and then you trade the prizes in next door for cash, right? Well, you you
0: go around the back. Yeah, yeah. So you, you grab this weird little fluffy teddy and you take it around the back and it turns into cash. Exactly. And this is how... Uh, pinball machines back in the day actually
1: got around anti gambling laws the exact same way but it wasn't maybe it was prizes sometimes but oftentimes it was free games you would win. So you'd win 20 free games as as you got this great score you trade those free games in for cash. So there's this long history of people trying to
0: skirt gambling laws by having like an intermediary exchange. Well, I understand in this point you made earlier about this sort of juvenile moral hazards and how this sort of this long history if the kids are doing it it must be inherently easy. yeah well what do you think that the next wave of moral hazards is?
1: Well, you know I'd like to I, I've kind of drawn this out you know we're in audio so it won't work right here uh, but I but I, I think every time this happens, it gets less and less severe. And I think you know as the generations go by, we get a little bit cooler and cooler as adults I like to think so in the you know when booze was the problem, I mean that was like. Apocalypse. Now people were freaking out. This is the worst thing in the world. Gambling, really, really bad, a little bit less than booze. Then by the time you get the comic books, bad, a little bit less than gambling. Video games, a little bit less than that. So you like, less
0: and you so you think, you know, chat roulette sexting and Tinder is all well. oh, just... <laughs> exactly.
1: We are so... Maybe we're desensi- we're either really desensitized or really cool <laughs> right now.
0: Why did you think you've been living in Brooklyn too long?
1: I know. I know. I really... I can't totally put myself in the shoes of somebody who... I'm, I'm sure you asked some uh, people of a certain age or generation today about pinball machines. They will be like, those things are the devil's work. And uh, that was kind of a widespread view at the time. The, there were... I, kind of, I found uh, notes from this scientific conference held... In which uh, scholars debated, and this is an exact quote, whether pinball machines were rearing a race of children who would be unable to love because of its satanic influence. That's like the severity. of language. But you
0: know, you could do a find and replace on that with you know screens, anything, iPads, iPhones, turning us into zombies. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but it's this sense that the, the next generation, because of their addiction to screen culture, oh,
1: that might be actually the best. I think, like a modern analog or using analog to describe digital devices but the the, the, the closest modern analog might be uh, the smartphones and yeah. screens and technology and
0: there's all this sort of pseudoscience research now about how much screen time uh, you know just the children, word screen time it's weird isn't yeah. it I mean it sort of feels like <laughs> something that will be so bizarre in 10 years to even talk about that oh it's also something
1: that like I'm sure a lot of the uh, older folks who are it's like uh, phrenology, or something. Or upset about <laughs> are the ones who are spending the most time in front of screens. So you know, it's, yeah. phrenology. I, I,
0: yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of think in fifty years' time that this next generation, having grown up used to screens and tablets, will be yelling at their kids to stop thinking at the computer yeah. and to use a tablet like a normal person. Well,
1: this is. I mean, and there is. I will say, I think there is something to be said for, especially at a really young ages, like massive exposures to screens. Because you think about, but 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 it's honestly, it's no different than than exposure to highly analog forms of media let's like go back in time for a minute here let's go way way back there was a time when in order to communicate with somebody you had to be in front of them right and so for you had to speak to them there was no writing there was no technology there was no telephones there's no computers you had to speak to somebody face to face and if you think about that that was 99.5 percent of Human history, yeah,
0: and uh, which is why you know at universities, I mean, uh, speaking was a key part of the curriculum. Oh, should be
1: um, no, but even think, so, so from an evolutionary perspective, and there's, you know, I, I hate using the term evolutionary history, but let's just do it for a second. From an evolutionary perspective, evolutionary history, our bodies is uh, adapted to deal with face-to-face communication, and pretty much only face-to-face communication. So over time, uh, the technologies such as writing along, such as things that separated uh, communication from both time and space and place. Hmm. Um, and that's a magical ability, because suddenly you can communicate across miles or time. You can do these things you could never do before, and our nervous system's never really adapted to that. And so I think there's something to be said for kind of understanding what our nervous systems are looking for in different situations and sort of saying that I can accept that technology is awesome and I can use it and I can take advantage of it, but I still need to kind of throw a bone to my nervous system at the same time and understand what it evolved to expect. So I think a great way of thinking about this, for example, is uh, if I talk to a good friend of mine or like a romantic partner face-to-face for 10 minutes, I will feel awesome, I'll feel great. I talk to that same person on the phone for a couple hours, I won't want to hang up, right? Or on the internet for hours, I won't want to hang up, and it's because your nervous system is never satisfied, right? It doesn't have that sense of place and presence, um, or the ability to scan for all these cues that tell us we have sort of done the quota of social activity we need, uh, and, and, and that's interesting right? So I think what people need to do is say, like, okay, I'm going to use technology, I'm going to milk it for all it's worth, I'm going to love it, but I still got to cater to my ancient nervous system just a little bit.
0: Uh, I, there's so much to unpack there, but I mean, it, it does sort of led me to think about virtual reality yes. in that that's starting now to expand the possible number of senses in, in a growing degree of resolution. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, to, I, to the point that maybe the nervous system could be tricked into thinking that a real interaction was possible. Oh, so
1: that that's such a Interesting can of worms you're opening up Let's here. open it. Okay,
0: so uh, let's
1: think about like what VR can be someday in the future. Let's go like way out there, yeah. right? Like right now, VR. People making VR are coming to it from kind of two primary perspectives. You have
0: people in the,
1: <laughs> three <laughs> primary perspectives.
0: <laughs>
1: you, have, uh, you have you have video game people. You right. have people using it as a tool to make incredibly immersive and beautiful video games, right? And then you have like the narrative people. You have filmmakers and people who and documentary makers and people looking to it as a storytelling kind of point of view. And you, and oftentimes these lines get blurred. VR uh, kind of forces filmmakers to create some agency and immersion on the part of the of the user in a way that is not true with a traditional film. Yes. And then in the uh, in the gaming world, it also uh, kind of brings you a little bit more towards experiential narrative in a way that might typically be associated with filmmaking. So you have these lines blurring between video games and between narrative and VR, and I find that fascinating. But what we're talking about here is something different. What we're talking about is how do you use technology like virtual reality to trick the nervous system into thinking that a simulacrum of social interaction is a true social interaction Hmm. and this is very very tough because of let's just say the uncanny valley right so if I'm in a social and and it's inevitable that people are going to kind of try to create shared universes in VR where we can uh, holodeck into a, a hangout joint and you know a fake bar let's say and talk to each other but Without, but but right now, anything sort of like that, you're dealing with a, a a flat-faced facade. You might have a digital avatar, but the nuance of that communication, the body language, the gestures the everything that tells me in my nervous system that I'm talking to a real human, that's not there. Yeah. And you can try to make it there, but right now you would run flat up against the unparalleled And because, And well, that's right. Yeah. As you actually get closer, the more distasteful it becomes. The more distasteful it becomes. So this is going to be, I think, the singular problem facing VR producers in the coming years and even decades, is how do you create similichromes of social interactions that are good enough that are good enough?
0: It's funny because I mean, people always reference Snow Crash. Uh, yeah. But one of the things that struck me most about one of the characters in that was that their job was actually trying to create emotional veracity yeah. in, in interactions.
1: Absolutely. This is this is fascinating. So you're you're seeing right now some kind of early attempts for us to kind of bring in let's just say facial expressions and body language and yeah, yeah, yeah. gestures into VR. Google has a thing called Googly Eyes, I think they call it, where the idea is they'll try to map. Uh, facial expressions onto a VR-represented avatar, but they're being smart about. They're not making it, you know, Tom Hanks in the Polar Express. They're making it a stick figure, right? So you're dealing with, like eyebrows that are literally just lines that go up or down or eyes that are that go open or close really really basic things that tell you it's yeah it's the eight-bit version of
0: yeah of interaction it is and
1: i think that's smart because first of all you need to master the basics before you can go varsity right
0: actually you know the the, the former founder of second life uh yeah. philip rosedale uh started a new company called i think high fidelity and okay. it's similar the whole premise is around more the the kind of the emotional resolution of the interactions.
1: Yeah, and this is this is going to be the singular challenge of VR because VR at its best is not mm. just a mm. cool way to play games. It's okay. not just a cool way to you know, watch stories. It's a cool way to teleport is what it is. It's a cool way to talk to people face to face. It's a cool way VR at its best tricks your nervous system into thinking it is somewhere it is not. In a good VR experience today, uh, I could put on the headset in a conference room or living room but transport myself to the top of a cliff, look down and feel legitimately scared. Or tell myself I'm going to step over that cliff and have problems doing that. We hear this all the time from VR makers who create these kind of scenarios just to mess with people a little bit. Tell them walk over that cliff and they have a really hard time doing it. Uh, you can trick
0: the nervous system of VR in a way you really can't in traditional media. Well, one thing that really fascinates me about that is the potential shift in perspective. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a, there was a great essay by Robert Hughes who uh, he was talking about the shock of the new. And he said uh, abstraction really was linked to the Eiffel Tower. Sure. Because when you got high enough, you could see the world at a certain perspective. It changed your view of reality. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested in how potentially virtual reality changes our own sense of reality the universe i don't think it's any wonder that people now are talking more about multiverse theories and since sure. the reality might be a hologram because you use really good vr and you start to wonder how much we are potentially experiencing <laughs> may not actually be real itself well i mean this is
1: the totally unoriginal thought alert here but you think about like what is our experience our experience is our brain translating a bunch of you know, substances and atoms into something that makes us able to interpret and survive in the world, yeah. right? It's, it's the
0: ultimate rendering. It engine. is.
1: Like, color is not real. Like, there's no such thing as color. Color is how wavelengths bounce off of objects, right? But we experience it as as real, and we experience it not just as real, but oftentimes as beautiful or aesthetically interesting or pleasing hmm. um, or artful. And, and that's fascinating to me. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we can get super philosophical here and talk about the nature of reality. <laughs> but I think at some point we'll just say like, okay, we'll just accept what I view of and you view of as real. Let's we'll just say that's real. What VR does that's cool is it allows us to, even if our conscious brain knows we are sitting in a conference room, our, I'm gonna, again, this is a cliche, our, our reptile brain, our, our nervous system, our basic, you know, Amygdala. <laughs> are, are amygdala. all these things they feel trepidation and fear and scared or excited they feel like they are somewhere they are not and that to me makes VR a really compelling platform for doing just about anything when i say just about anything i really mean just about anything yes entertainment is really cool but think about therapy we're talking about this offline a little bit think about training people think about like taking firefighters and training them how to handle certain scenarios Mm -hmm. in a in a way that would be very expensive to do in the real world or very dangerous to do um imagine like circus performers who need to handle you know anything involving like motor skills or spatial awareness vr has the ability to to Bake these things, I, I believe, into your nervous system in a way that'll be very difficult to do through traditional
0: mechanisms. So we've talked a little bit about disembodying ourselves into the digital world. Uh, it might be interesting to kind of riff a little on the reverse, uh, which is bringing the digital world into the embodied form. And sure, and I think this is pertinent because we actually met uh, last week. Yes. Uh, at this, this this wonderful secret society. Of course, mainly we in talk about it. There it's... were no masks or capes. It was yeah. uh, it was the influences and. Uh, and you were giving this fascinating talk about uh, sex robots. Yeah. <laughs> which is obviously a great interest and in personal passion of yours. No. <laughs> I'm going to deny that. I'm going to deny that. It's just your dinner party, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, this is sort of the, the, the interesting sort of other side of this, which is as we start to give life to robotics and it becomes more of a real thing the the way we're kind of anthropomorphizing them, and yeah, making them an expression of our own weird desires. Oh, so so, so give some background. Here. I gave this. It was it was, it was it was for jokes. It was a funny. It was it was a
1: talk about uh, how you can. I think I called the talk. You can tell a lot about a man by the sex bot he makes for himself. <laughs> Which is, you know, the idea being that like these things are, are really just expressions of the of their creators is what they are. And I think that, that's a theme that f- finds itself I think in science fiction quite a bit as well.
0: So this is not a new idea. Creating sex bots.
1: Oh, no, well, well. this is what I say, like, what is a robot? What I, what I like to say is we as men, and I literally mean like males in this situation, but also, you know, just humans, uh, try to create perfect partners in any way we can, using the technology we have at the time. And this is, you know, in modern times, that might literally mean like a Jetson-style robot, modern electronics, something like the movie X-Mac and it might have displayed. Um, but if you look back in ancient times, this is artwork, this is statues, this is our need to create perfection around us.
0: And yeah, people actually were um, in love with some of these marble statues, right? Well, There's so, some documented well, marble right, love yeah. <laughs> interactions. I mean, well, in these days, you
1: oftentimes <laughs> those stories, maybe in other countries, more in the States, about people falling in love with pillows or uh, or, or, or blow-up dolls or any of these other inanimate objects. But that's a thing. That can, I suppose, happen. But uh, what you're referencing, which I think is one of my favorite little anecdotes from history about sort of the pitfalls of, of of conveying our own desires as well as our own searches for perfection unto other people, um, involves the, this case of this woman named Audrey Munson. Um, and some people may have heard of her. I just think she's a fascinating historical figure. Essentially, if you look around New York City today, there are countless statues of of women. Um, And these women look like kind of Greek goddess types. They'll make chariots and flowing robes and bits flying around them. They'll be at the top of towers or in the facades of buildings or in museums. And you think to yourself, that's either some amalgamation of various women or that's a big of somebody's imagination, or maybe that's just, like, Athena, right? <laughs> um, but it turns out that so many of these statues are actually modeled after the same real-life woman, this woman named Audrey Munson, who appears dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of times in New York City alone. She is everywhere. Uh, she was known in her time as Miss Manhattan. She was supposedly the most beautiful and perfect woman of her time, uh, the kind of woman who would walk down the street and these artists and sculptors would see her and stop her and kind of pull a Titanic and say, I must draw you or <laughs> I must sculpt you. and, and So that, that line was still being used? in oh, <laughs> the original, original. Um, and, and to the point where she became kind of omnipresent in, in, in art and sculpture. And she became actually um, an early silent film star. Um, I believe she was the first woman ever to appear naked in a silent film, which is kind of an amazing... thing. Kim film.
0: Kardashian got the selfie, the transient yeah. selfie. She, <laughs> she
1: got the Marvel rendition. The Marvel selfie. I mean, unless you do it yourself, it's not really a selfie, I guess. It <laughs> takes a self-portrait, so those are the original selfies, but the, but the story takes a tragic turn because mm. she was viewed as this uh, ideal, perfect woman, um, and a lot of men, they desired her, and that had some consequences, so her landlord in particular became infatuated with her, in love with her, and actually murdered his wife so he would be available to court her, despite the fact that she never really expressed any interest in being courted by this gentleman. Uh, so she apparently went mad from, you know, maybe she had some psychiatric predilections in the first place, but this kind of attention would drive anybody crazy, I believe, and it certainly drove her crazy. And uh, she attempted suicide by drinking poison, um, <laughs> and but she did not kill herself, it did not work. It, perhaps exacerbate any mental health issues she had, and she spent the rest of her life in a mental hospital until she died in 1996 at the age of 104 years old, My forgotten, buried in an unmarked grave. And I just find this this is incredible cautionary tale about what happens when we, again, as men, as males, uh, try to make women or anybody uh, into what we want them to be and not except for what they are. <laughs>
0: Do you think Siri is a, uh, a manifestation of that? <laughs> Siri. <laughs> uh, nah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, but it, it's interesting because I, I, when you look at Japan, Japan has come up with some of these. Female robotics, which seem to defy the uncanny valley. I mean, they're 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 they're, 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 they're rather unusual, and I, I guess in some ways they are a projection of of male fantasies. Also.
1: Oh, in some ways,
0: <laughs> I mean, what, what am I This is the culture that invented the maid cafes. Yeah, rather. I mean, in, in
1: some ways, you know, I've been to Japan twice. I don't know enough about the culture. To really comment on that uh but my my i i think that saying that uh i'm I'm just gonna leave that at that yeah it's
0: what i'm wondering wondering is as robots become more of a a daily currency in our lives do you think we're going to go past the point where we try to anthropomorphize them and they'll actually just start to look like utilities like toasters
1: well they already are i mean a toaster is a robot in some ways right like your coffee machine is a robot you slap a face on it, you call it a robot. It's, I mean, like what, I mean, we call the machines at GM plants that make cars, we call those robots. They don't, well, look... cars are robots. I mean, they, they yeah. have faces and, and eyes. Yeah. I, mean. I mean, Pixar ran with that for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but, but I think any device that has some automation, you know, they're like, what becomes a robot becomes a purely subjective term. Like, mm. you know, what makes something a robot and, and what doesn't? It's what we want it to be like i think the term robot implies a level of um of utility but also a level of personality an agency an agency and or if not agency you know i think i think the reason that we have no problem calling uh car making devices robots is because they do something that was once done by a human right it's why we say like the, the the lunar Rover, or the excuse me, the Mars rover, or some of the 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 robots that um, organizations like NASA might use, we might call these things robots because they're doing something a human would have done before.
0: When, when you when you look at these people that are advocates of the singularity, yes, uh, sort of the techno utopians, I mean, this sense of uploading yourself into this into the cloud or becoming one with this kind of uber robot, is, is that a? Do you think that's the flip side of this? Trying to take on the superpowers of you know, of the machine?
1: You know, it's. I've got my own thoughts on the singularity, I'm gonna to keep to myself. But it's, you should not keep it okay. to yourself. Okay, so here's the thing. You, so, uh, do you wanna upload yourself? Nah, I'm cool. <laughs> but, but I respect people who do, I get it. It's. But I think. I mean, but also, It's not
0: Scientology, you can speak out against it.
1: But also, like, I mean, let's just, like, take this from a science fiction perspective. If you upload yourself and you die like you're dead still you know maybe it maybe you a version of you is out there but that's just the same as having children you know and having like yeah. your own dna out there like it's i think an information it's, transfer your consciousness is still the, gone. Wrong. the you know the the ideal of, of living of, of having your essence live forever well that's there man that's what reproduction is like you're taking your dna and it's Propagating, it's living down. If you take the basic unit of evolution and say it's not the person, but the but the gene or the DNA, man, those things are already living forever. And I, I think that's uh, you know, so. I think we're a lot further than we might think. We're just looking at it from the wrong angle. <laughs> but uh, but the issue I think if we want to take you know the traditional view of the singularity, like the Ray Kurzweil ideal, I'm going to upload my personality and I want to live forever in this cloud or machine or whatever it's going to be, the biggest problem. That we're going to have doing that, and why I think that's a little bit further away than a lot of the optimists might say it is, is because the brain is just so freaking complex. Because understanding, because um, it's not a computer in a way that a, you know, Intel chip is. It's, it's not a hardware problem. It's not a hardware problem. It's a, because we can look at the brain and we don't, we can say this part does this, and this part does that. But that's not really how the brain works. The brain is this incredibly complex, and the rest of the body and nervous system too. It's not just the brain. These incredibly complex interlocking systems that have functions that we don't understand and that date back to adaptations for a world that no longer exists. It comes back to what I was saying before. The world we live in today is an alien world compared to the one that our bodies did the vast majority of their evolution in, adapting for. So we have all these circuits in our bodies and in our brains and all these adaptations and and features and they are for a world that no longer exists. And to say that a computer scientist or somebody kind of trying to solve the singularity problem is gonna be able to replicate this.
0: It's like trying to re- reverse engineer something that's been jerry-rigged for like thousands, millions of years.
1: Millions right? of years. And saying to ourselves like, we don't know why these things are there and also And then to even say, why are these things there? Trying to put any sort of... The agency <laughs> behind evolution is also a huge fallacy. Like it's really simplistic and oftentimes necessary to say this adaptation solves this problem, it's here for that. But that's not really how evolution works. Evolution isn't thinking these things out loud to itself. It stumbles into it and it's messy and it's chance driven because somebody who had that adaptation happens to live a little bit longer, you know? And so to understand the why of these things, it's necessary to this and it's almost impossible because our world is so different and alien, and because the people who are attacking. This problem are not neuroscientists, they're computer scientists. And those two people need to get in a room together if they want to do this.
0: Seth, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Fascinating conversation. We could have spoken, I think, for hours. Uh, But it's great to see you. Thank you. Glad Mm -hmm. to be here. You've been listening to Between Worlds, For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.